0: everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas C., the host of the chan- channel. Today, we'll be talking to Botokoz Kasimbekova about her book, Despite Cultures, Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Botokoz, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. For yeah, we're really you, happy to uh, have to you to here. Um, Bodecos, before we start talking about the book, I was hoping you could um, start the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a historian of uh, Russian and Soviet history. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Wellcome Trust uh, Investigator Project, uh, growing old in the Soviet Union from 1945 to 1991 at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Liverpool John Morris University. My book that I wrote on um, early Soviet rule in Tajikistan, I wrote as part of my PhD that I completed at the Humboldt University in Berlin.
0: Great. And that that's a good segue so we can start actually talking about the book, um, which I'll refer to okay. as Despite Cultures, the, the main title of the book. And once again, that's Despite Cultures, Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan. Now, I know originally you were planning on studying Uh, courts, and maybe concepts of Soviet law in Central Asia or in Tajikistan, but then something happened in in your research or in maybe when you were writing the dissertation that changed the trajectory of the book. And I was hoping um, to start off, you could explain how you got interested in the topic of law, why um, maybe the content or the the trajectory of your book changed.
1: Yes. I Originally, I intended to understand how Uh, The Soviet regime instituted the new system of justice. So I wanted to know how the issues of justice were negotiated by uh, the Communist Party, by the Bolsheviks, in a new cultural setting in Central Asia. Uh, So this question fascinates many scholars um, in the field of Central Asian studies. But for me, my interest um, uh, in the legal sphere was not to understand how... For example, Islamic law functions, um, but rather uh, I wanted to use the legal sphere um, to understand larger uh, transformations. Um, well, back then for me, uh, the legal sphere was a very natural prism to understand um, these larger social, economic, political transformations. Uh, because I thought that, well, where else do you discuss the differences between cultures, you know, between um, agency, between the understanding of what, you know, um, a state um, and generally life is about? Well, so my kind of um, this top down, distant understanding before I started working in archives um, of how kind of the state works was that in the legal field, there are all these debates and discussions. um, And then I will look at, uh, you know, um, uh, outcomes of uh, legal disputes, uh, trials, and then it will um, give me the understanding of, you know, what the state considers as just and appropriate. But very quickly, when I started to look in uh, to to read my archival materials, I realized that the Soviet legal field, especially in the 90s and 20s, um, is 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 very different from this kind of. Uh, I had this Western understanding of the legal field and its um, function um, in the modern state. Um, I realized that um, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to study. Um, the legal field outside of larger political struggles um, that were taking place in the Soviet Union. I also soon realized that law played a very subordinate role um, than, for example, in many uh, modern uh, Western states. Um, just to give an example, I was, for example, very interested in uh, the um, the phenomenon of uh, the how the Soviets, kind of European officials, uh described as beta-vi which are kind of traditional crimes. For example, um, a man um marrying four wives, if according to kind of um local traditions, it was legal and it was appropriate. The new kind of Soviet law, l- the lawyers, um there were a couple of debates, very, very little information. Um uh, there was little discussion. What do we do with a man who has four wives? If we forcefully make him divorce the other three wives, then they will be divorced wives they will be uh, They will have problems because now they are divorced, and it is not seen in society as something positive. They will be without a protector, they will be uh, homeless maybe so it wasn 't a very communist thing to do. So what do we do with? uh all kinds of these things which of course karl marx no Friedrich engels no lenin no stalin had answers to so i was interested in these kind of uh discussions of what you know what is appropriate in a, in a new kind of communist state but um there was very little discussion about that there was very very little uh so there there were a couple of articles that touch on this issue but then you know one cannot base one's um you know, work on a you know, maximum of 20 pages um, of archival um, material. So very often when local jurists would write uh, Moscow and ask, oh, what should we do in this case? They never received an answer. And then very, very quickly, um, those tourists, they were, you know, they, they lost their jobs. They They couldn't stay in their positions because there was simply no pay. They realized that, Working um, in uh, institutions of justice meant poverty. They didn't have any political um, leverage, and it was much more. If one could read and write and understand local languages, uh, one uh, was much better off working for the police, working for other institutions. So the legal field was very weak in several kind of um, um, in several. Ways. First of all, financially. Second, secondly, politically, and there was very little kind of um, understanding that we need to we we need to develop the legal field. And uh, I realized later that uh, this was not simply a little misunderstanding um, of what law is, or simply ignorance. It was really it, part of the communist ideology. Uh, that proclaimed kind of law is being a bourgeois tool. Law being a tool for capitalists to protect their property, and law being simply something you know where people talk, where people discuss, but it's not—it's not a real tool for making revolution. Law was a rev- an a revolutionary uh, thing. So, you know, the Bolsheviks did not really pay attention uh, to that field. Um, and when they did start to pay attention, law became um, a tool to repress, to collect statistics. And this is something that I describe in my work, but it wasn't the field that I imagined it to be. So very little, I understood that the action takes place actually outside of the legal field. So if there were very little discussions between jurists about, you know, what is justice? How do we change society? How, uh, like, uh, Do we transform law? Or do we transform society through law there were, this is This is something that I hope to find, but what I found was that um, a lot of decisions that were supposed to be legal actually took um uh, place outside of the legal field there were very um, There were many extra legal um trials, shootings, and I realized that well, I can spend a lot of time on you know, discussing what was already discussed previously by scholars who looked at the Soviet law. Um, But then I, because I was interested in uh, the question of, you know, Soviet transformation, of how the Soviet power was instituted generally and not simply in the issues of law. Law was a prison for me. The, The legal field was a prison for me for larger transformations. And I realized that in the kind of early Soviet context, it is a very limited prison for me. I changed my direction. I decided to study, you know, other important things that uh, were happening at that time in, in in Tajikistan.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really really fascinating. Um, my my one the one question I wanted to ask before we uh, move on a little bit was who were these law professionals who were being sent to Central Asia and perhaps, why were they being sent to Central Asia? Was it out of a sense of duty? Were they being forced to move there? Was it some kind of punishment? Because as you said, and I think you mentioned in the book too, that um, the conditions for these individuals were basically that they were living in poverty once they arrived Central Asia. And I wonder, you know, from from Moscow's perspective, perhaps developing a legal system in Central Asia didn't seem quite important and in some ways, it seems self fulfilling that if you're if you're not interested in in developing a legal system specifically in Central Asia, you're not going to invest the resources in it, and any attempt by individuals to set up a legal system is ultimately going to fail. Would you say that's true, and then could you give us a little background if 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 it's there uh, on these individuals?
1: Yes, if we look at kind of european jurists um First, at European jurists uh, in Tajikistan, um, I have the list. You know of uh, people who worked at the uh, uh, commissariat of justice. We will find people. Um, they do not write that, of course, in their uh, you know introductions uh, when they apply for the for the posts in in Dushanbe, but. Um, Interestingly, these were people who studied in imperial times in Petersburg. They studied law. Uh, that means they were trained also kind of, they knew, you know, Western understandings, um, understanding of the legal sphere. I was very fascinated um, uh, by that because before that at the Humboldt University, I took a course on, you know, Russian um, uh, legal history and also the, um the legal training of uh, of Russian imperial uh, jurists. So um, having these people quite, um, well, first of all, trained um, in imperial times, but also had experience in imperial times, as we know like before the revolution, law was um, played a, a very important role in Russian society, um, where it was a sphere where, you know, transformation, political transformation was discussed and actually um, took place, uh, we have all these f- famous uh, trials uh, that were disguised widely in society. So some of these people go to Central Asia. My feeling, uh, of course, they write that, well, I'm interested in serving the Soviet state, etc. I sense that they were partially fleeing the repressions. They understood that it might be difficult for them and it was uh, we we'll look at the uh, second half of the 20s uh, they probably could not flee to um, other countries and they probably understood that uh, this might be a more or less safe post. I'm trained uh, and because they could be accused as bourgeois, as intelligentsia um, it was safe for them to, to flee to post like Dushanbe. Some People, um, I found material who actually went to Tajikistan in order to flee f- through, Tajikis- uh, through Afghanistan to India and then, you know, to Western countries, to Europe. I don't know what, whether these people um, um, attempted or intended to do that. Um, there was um, enormous rotation among jurists. So I could, I could not, this, this is kind of something that was very unsatisfying for me is that, uh, we could not find, I could not uh, reconstruct biographies because there were simply very little information. People disappear and I don't know what happened to them. So a lot of people work only for two, three months and then they disappear. Uh, so I couldn't like, we don't have people who worked in institutions of justice for uh, for three years or for four years, we don't have that. So it's a very fluid institution. Um, And of course, laws are very uh, fluid, especially during collectivization laws are being, you know, printed. Um, um, New laws were printed every two, three months. Uh, Legal decisions were changed. Also, every um, time a commission could come to to Tajikistan. So, yes, this was kind of um, a problem. And now I forgot the initial question. I'm very sorry. (laughs) Could you please repeat?
0: No, that's okay. I I was specifically asking about the uh, background of these individuals and maybe asking for some insight on why they would have um, gone to Tajikistan, whether it was willingly or if there was some coercion involved there. But I think you answered the question um, pretty well. So uh, thank you for that. Um, So once you decided that Uh, in some ways, studying um, Soviet law um, in in Tajikistan, in Central Asia, was a bit of a dead end, especially on its own. Um, Did you start looking towards other sources? Or how did you um, come up with? It seems like you kind of expanded the, the scope of your research. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at the project as it is now?
1: Well yes when i realized that um well the legal sphere um uh, is still part of my work um but i but i started looking around and i started looking at what was happening what were important um um you know events um that were happening in Tajikistan uh, at that time and newspapers were an important source for me so I looked at every issue of the major newspapers that were um, in archives in Tajikistan, and um, so some some of the events and some of the processes caught my eye, and I went after them and I um, and I studied them. Uh, of, course, uh, we have collectivization. Uh, of course, we have collectivization. Um, of course, we have purges. Um, newspapers themselves as an institution caught my eye and i was uh got interested in this kind of anonymous letters um uh letters of complaints uh so if and then in some of also my legal um acts trials i found some uh fascinating information and i uh, also had a micro study of of uh, of s- some trials um, so I went and I just saw, so for me, it wasn't, the aim then became not so much uh, to, um, to to tell the whole story of Tajikistan, you know, like, uh, okay, this is the field of education. This is the field of agriculture. This is the field of industry. This is how we studied Soviet history when I was a school student. Um, and of course, this is not what I wanted to do what I quickly realized um, uh, by looking at, uh, you know, different materials and, you know, ordering these files and these files, uh, looking at um, different events, what I really uh, quickly realized is that I'm interested not so much in, you know, these big questions of colonialism, imperialism, nationalism, something that we've been reading already um, about, uh, you know, s- uh, Soviet Central Asia. What I was interested uh, Quite early, um, I got interested in the figure of a Soviet official. And for me, um, um, I realized that there is, there is a certain understanding of what the Soviet state is. And that understanding, that top-down Moscow kind of political understanding of how to bring about changes was really connected uh, to the figure of a Soviet official and uh so I studied both i I was interested in big events and important events that took place back then in Tajikistan uh and processes but at the same time, I looked at um who was in charge of what how they understood uh, how these or that Soviet officials understood their role uh how they interpreted the situation how they uh, communicated with you know with with moscow with tashkent uh h- how they understood their role so this was um yes so of course this was uh, an inductive research i didn't have this kind of idea okay i, w- I want to write a chapter about this i want to write a chapter about this i sat in tajikistan for three years in archives i had plenty of time i was very fortunate to to, to live in tajikistan for six years And I was very fortunate to have um, um, a possibility to sit in archives from, you know, 9 till 5 o'clock there. So I wasn't in a hurry. Uh, I was just sitting and drinking tea and talking to archivists and was just really uh, thinking, okay, let let me look at these archives and let me look at these archives. And by the time I realized that, okay, the same information is coming, I thought, okay, I'm ready now t- uh, to structure my book. I'm ready now to write down hypothesis and I'm ready now, you know, to make it systematically. I could write much more chapters, but, you know, um, you have to, at some point, um, you know, write your PhD, defend it and publish um, a book. And I think I've, I've, I've wrote down like the most important things that I've um, understood from my time in archives
0: great um so that that the the focus on the individual is 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 something very compelling to me and i'm wondering if um well i have two questions so first of all is there what what do we get that's new about this what does focusing on this individual in tajikistan tell us about uh, soviet history or the way that soviet rule worked overall is this um is this a story unique to Tajikistan or is there something bigger here that we can learn about the Soviet system? And then if you don't mind, the second question is about the you meant you've you've given us some hints about what was happening in Tajikistan in the nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties, but I was hoping you could um elaborate a little bit more on that. Like what were the what are the main milestones of Soviet Tajik history? You start your book in, I think, about 1925 and go up to 1938. So I was wondering if you could also explain why you chose that time period um, and just give us some of that uh, background information. Thanks.
1: Yes. Uh, so to the first question, what, what does it give us? Uh, what does the actor center approach gives us? Well, um, I think it gives a lot. I think that uh, it completely changed my understanding. And I must say, I didn't have much of the understanding of the early Soviet rule in Central Asia, but um, it really problematizes this kind of top-down binary vision of what the Soviet rule was in Central Asia. So we have this kind of binary vision uh, colonialism um, versus you know state uh, modern state construction uh, imperial, imperialism versus uh, nationalism um, you know victims uh, versus um, you know aggressors or i have a German word in my mind sorry um, aggressors or oppressors so and I think when we look at individuals and pe- officials who actually were in charge of instituting that rule, um, these binaries get blurred. And at the end of the day, um, you don't know, you know, you know that the actors themselves very often were disoriented. Very often they did not know what they were doing, why they were doing. Many did not agree, um, with other institutions, which is normal, but of course, they had very little. Um, they had to navigate w- w- uh, the kind of a very complicated system that they did not understand themselves. What can I say now? What can I not say now? What is most strategic? How? And I was very fascinated uh, by f- kind of tracing terror uh, in I mean, when people understand that now they cannot say anything that they could say before, and that is the biggest difference between 1920s and 1930s, there is a lot of protest. Uh, There is a lot of very differentiated speech in the 1920s. People are complaining. Everyone is complaining. Everyone is criticizing the Soviet state, the institution, the bureaucracy. By 1930s, and this is what kind of um, the chapter, of the speechless empire, uh, says. A lot of people were afraid to say. Um, they now understood that saying, speaking, the speech was dangerous. And as I show in my, um, when I look at the uh, stenograph of the, uh, you know, plenums, uh, it was very interesting how people resorted to. Sp- Talking nonsense as a mechanism of defense. Whereas in the 1920s, we have very, very sophisticated complaints where people understand very quickly that, you know, this doesn't work that way. We need very reliable uh, legal institutions, we need reliable laws, we need reliable information infrastructure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Where people speak, they do not, you know, differ from. Contemporary kind of political discussions uh, they talk kind of in the spirit of uh, democracy, even they, well not of course in a very sophisticated um, philosophical debate, but they say, well, we have to have the right to decide upon the you know the budget, we have to decide upon um, these political procedures or these um, uh, economic uh, plans uh, they say they raise concerns they um, have interesting ideas. By 1930s, that is not the case. They know that uh, it's better not to say anything, and saying, saying um, anything can be interpreted as nationalism, as chauvinism, you know, um, anything. So people really construct words um, to strategically not to, not to be understandable. Which I think was a very smart. Uh, thing to do in the circumstances that they were. So I was very fascinated by my actors and by the, after, you know, analyzing my material and writing it down, I think that for me, there is no question. Of course, um, I do use in the title kind of this, and I do discuss these issues of imperialism or colonialism that my actors discuss, but, um, I think that kind of these binaries are blurred for me. Um, we get the understanding that, um, it's not enough simply to compare the Soviet Union with, you know, like British imperial rule. I think it's a cold war rhetoric. I think that we should, you know, um, distance ourselves or reflect upon, um, when we compare it, why do we compare it, um, and um when i use the term imperialism for me it's probably stalin's imperialism more than kind of this um generic use of word imperialism
0: right and i that was one of the most striking things about the book is that it it seems that in the way that you're structuring the chapters that you are accepting to some degree the the label empire or imperialism um, as a useful um, concept in this this context. But nonetheless, you're trying to elaborate on what that means. So we have titles such as Empire as a Personal Responsibility, A Nation to Serve Empire, An Empire of Numbers, An Empire of Chauvinists and Nationalists, An Empire of Liars, A Speechless Empire. And these are just a few examples of some chapter titles. Um, So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on why this, this term empire continues to show up. Are you trying to show that, well, there are very distinct Soviet ways almost that that empire was carried out? Is that is that the purpose here? Um, and then I know you talk about wanting to get away from this argument about, uh, well, was Soviet Central Asia colonial or imperial or something in between? Um, but it's hard to avoid that discussion when the term empire is so prevalent in your book. So if you could just talk about that briefly, um, especially for some listeners who might not be aware of these debates um, and then we can move on to something else.
1: Well, uh, thank you for this question. It's a, it's a very uh, good question. Um, and I, I, I get receiving this question, so I uh, really need to have a good answer and you know, Probably back then when I was, uh, you know, writing these titles, I did it intuitively, but it seems to me that what I'm trying to do with these titles, you know, Empire of Liars or Speechless Empire, I'm deconstructing the word empire here. So usually when we think of the term empire, we think of, you know, the rule by difference of, you know, racism or, you know. Violence against the others of uh, you know um, of people who are others, either religion, skin color, geographically, etc., etc., etc. By you know saying an empire of numbers, I'm saying that well, um, you know, numbers uh, cannot be numbers. is something that we attribute to the modern state. You know, numbers. You know, how can you have an empire of numbers? Uh, or how can you have a speechless empire? Empire is that uh, codifies, it civilizes, it tells you who is good, who is bad, who is you know higher, who is more civilized, who is backward. Um, so probably what I'm doing um, is I'm deconstructing the word empire, but at the same time um, I'm saying that it's the relationship between the center and a vast territory. For me, it was. Really, like one of the also biggest question behind, you know, uh, that was always in the background was how did Moscow um, try to ensure its rule, Politburo, how did Politburo in Moscow try to ensure its rule on its most southern periphery? Uh, you know, I was uh, writing my PhD at the Department of East European History, and people were always asking me, "What does Tajikistan have to do with Eastern Europe?" And uh, and this is this is also the question: how how? I mean, there was um, this enormous distance, taking into account that infrastructure was not very well developed in the 1920s and 30s, and you know. Uh, air connection was also not um, so great and terrific, and even telegraph stations were very often attacked and and uh, did not work. Uh, despite all these material difficulties, how do you make sure that what you write today will be read and followed tomorrow? How do we make sure that the plans are realised? far, far away. So kind of, and, and this distance, overcoming this distance for me kind of is an imperial rule. But if we look at the Soviet case, uh, this rule for me um, is based not on, you know, primarily the difference between the people uh, or the cultures or, you know, this is, this also played some role but if we look at uh, kind of Soviet governance, um, there is much more, it's much more complicated. Um, you're right. Maybe one needs to really come up with a different word and, you know, introduce a new term. Um, I didn't do that. I complicated. I tried to complicate and decentralize and and um, irritate the concept of empire. Um Maybe in the future, um, yes, one could uh, think of a different term. And, of course, one necessarily makes kind of um, connections and and, and compares uh, different uh, regimes, and, uh, you know, the uh, Bolsheviks did that too. Uh, They set their rule in the context of kind of imperial governance and were anti-imperialist. So probably this is what uh, also happened to me, but I tried to complicate uh, to complicate uh, that term um, in the Soviet context.
0: I think this is a good time to bring up uh, the title of the book, Despite Cultures, because one thing I was thinking about as I was reading the book was that in in early Tajikistan, you know, I think we kind of take the concept of Tajikistan for granted. But as far as I can tell, there was actually several distinct um i don't know local identities in tajikistan at the time and i i was wondering if you could elaborate on this like what what was kind of the ethnic makeup of tajikistan at the time and did it matter um to these to these um soviet individuals who were overseeing tajikistan at the time your title is despite cultures so that implies that it doesn't matter that there are these distinct identities. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that. Kind of what is the role of, of you know, the, the quote the nation in early uh, Soviet Tajikistan, and whether there was some kind of flattening of local identities or ethnic identities in the pursuit of a of a national
1: identity. Well. Yes. Um just like in many different, you know, regions of the world and even nations, like if we look at Germany, if we look at um, you know, even England, not even talking about the UK, we have uh of course also in Tajikistan, um different, you know, dialects, um languages, different groups and the project of you know uh, having one um Kind of national identity, uh, is a modern project. Um, this was, this was something that was already studied by other scholars and was not part, uh, did not interest me as much. But, um, when I was studying collectivization and resettlement in Tajikistan, uh, I could see how what was interesting for me, um, Was to understand how kind of this idea of the nation state was used by uh, Bolshevik leaders, despite the fact that it did not really make sense. You know, despite the fact that uh, uh, Tajikistan was not uh, um, primarily a region where, you know, only Persian speakers were living, or despite the fact that Bolsheviks very soon understood that they need to send Europeans to Tajikistan in order uh, to um, industrialize it, to um, fulfill the agricultural plans as well. Despite all of that, how do we how do we um, still stick to the idea of the nation state? So it's not even that the uh, local composition did not really did not always make make sense. Um, um, in Tajikistan, but also further Soviet policies did not make sense. Um, that was very interesting to me. And I, uh, discussed how kind of this idea, uh, of, uh, the nation state was an imperial, kind of imperial tool in this sense, a tool to enable Moscow to centralize and control its rule. So in a way, the kind of nationality policy was a governance policy it was a soviet governance policy it wasn't simply a population policy um, it wasn't simply uh, you know to to make sure that certain you know ethnic populations dominate in certain territories but it was a a, a tool for political governance um, yes yeah, so um in in uh, i was very interested by this kind of uh, debates um and this kind of fear of Moscow uh that their rule could be could be seen as colonial by local um uh, residents by 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 people uh, in Central Asia because uh, the political police were writing down these reports or people think that uh, you know we are not so great, and maybe uh it, it would be better if great britain actually um if british come and uh you know colonize us because uh they're not as severe and it's uh one could um have more food uh with with Bolsheviks were only hungry and there were all these protests um so there was all this rhetoric um but um and so then I was uh, very interested in how um you know, the figure, the cultural and political figure of a Russian worker was used for Tajikistan's nation building, which doesn't really make sense in a way if, if we study, if we are Central Asianists, if we study, you know, uh, the region, if we study the local languages, but if we study Soviet history and the relationship between Moscow and different regions of the Soviet Union, it then makes sense. And so, this kind of story that doesn't really enter to the history of uh, Central Asia, how the figure of a Russian worker could be part of the national discourse, um, and it and it was there. So it's a very kind of to study um, for me uh, the kind of the mm, a very improvisational nature. Of uh, the Soviet um, rulers dealing with, you know, its rule in the uh, on its periphery. This is kind of uh, interests me more than simply to try to find a coherent uh, national policy or coherent um, to identify coherently who lived when, what languages they spoke, and how they feel about being Tajik or not being Tajik. Rather, for me, I'm very interested in how this rhetoric of a nation state uh, was used in different, you know, in the 1920s is what used differently than in the 1930s. Uh, In different contexts, it was used differently. So I'm very interested in playing with this idea of a nation in different contexts uh, for different purposes. And if we see that these kind of uh, policy or policies, they were not consistent. So I would rather be very careful talking about one systematic uh, development in Tajikistan and one systematic policy towards Tajikistan. And I think for the people who now live in Tajikistan, it's still an open question. Um, It was an open question during the Soviet times, and it is still an open question. Um, who are we, or who is Tajik, who is not Tajik? And it's very, it's a very situational and it's very context, um, kind of uh, context-based feeling, understanding. Um, yes. So <laughs> hopefully,
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That's an imp- You made a really important point, and um, you know what I like about that is that. It really causes us to understand like how quickly things were changing between the mid twenties, the late 1920s, the early 1930s. And you're right that, um, and this comes out through in the book that, um, the use of kind of national identities, or as you call it, uh, national, an an empire of national chauvinists and nationalists, that this becomes a tool um during kind of the the party cleansing uh purges of the nineteen thirties like throughout that you know to be um denounced as as a nationalist or a chauvinist is 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 pretty um detrimental um so y- you made a really good point there, and it is interesting to see how these things become kind of as you would call it like a technology of rule um so i'm going to move the i
1: could Go also ahead. add here. To look at the difference between 1920s and 30s, for example, at some point uh, one could be cherished for being, you know, a, you know, a Tajik poet, a uh, being um, a person who fights for a new Tajik identity uh, against, uh, you know, British imperialists, and at the same time, this that person who was celebrated could be purged in the 1930s and could become a bourgeois nationalist. So from being you know, a hero, one uh, could become an enemy. Um, and so this this was a very, um, yes, unstable, there, there was a lot of instability and inconsistency, and that's why until now it's a very sensitive issue and a very sensitive topic, because it's it is highly politicized and it could be used very often arbitrarily, um and it because it's something that is very basic to you, um that is why um everyone expects you to be somebody. Um, that's why um it is still um it it was part of the governance, it was part of the political uh construct, and it still stays now. Um yes. Simply, this is what I wanted to to, to add, is that, you know, from being a hero to being an enemy, uh, from um, being, um, you know, cherished for knowing uh, the Tajik language, for example, in the 1920s, and the Soviet um, uh, party leadership in Moscow actually invited people from Persia, uh, you know, to ironize uh, the uh, the the Tajik language, to institute the Tajik language as a language, as a national language, Uh, in the 1930s, um, the uh, new kind of party, Tajik party leadership, uh, they actually said openly during plenum's at the opening that they don't know Tajik so very well. And by saying that they spent so much time in Moscow that they forgot Tajik and they excused themselves, but they are Tajik, they were trying to say that we are not nationalists. You know, so these things changed. Um, And at some point, uh, you know, uh, a russified Tajik or a Tajik uh, who was not, who had, you know, as members of his or her family, other nationalities, it was very progressive and was politically desirable later in the 20th century. Whereas, you know, after the collapse, then new identity politics was at stake. But what um, there were many different um, contexts, which configuration was politically desirable at this moment. Uh, but what the Soviet kind of governance institute was that this absolute linkage linkage between ethnicity and politics, that was something that was instituted in the 1920s. And that is something that became very, very salient, very, very personal and very, very important uh, in the 1930s.
0: All right. Thank you. Yeah, that would... Um... That's an excellent explanation. And, and once again, yeah, I like to see um, those those uh, differences in periods as they're taking place. And I think it's a creative way to think about kind of the role of, of national identity or whatever we want to call it in this context. Um, so now I want to move the conversation a little bit um, back towards uh, your use of sources um, within the book, because I think To me, what's interesting, too, is we get a very interesting look at kind of what was happening on the ground, especially during collectivization um, through your sources. And in particular, the one thing that struck me was um, these are called MTS, Machine Tractor Stations. And this, I think, became a fairly important source for you. So I was hoping you could explain what those were and what kind of paper trails they left behind. How you found out about these and and how they contributed to the arguments in in the latter half of your book
1: yes, thank you for this question um, I would never when I studied my research, I would never think that I would end uh, with a chapter on motor tractor stations because you know this is simply funny for a person who you know I went to a Soviet school, well at least I became a pioneer um, and You know, um, even in the post-Soviet period in the uh, 1990s, we still read all these Soviet history textbooks. And there we read all these, you know, tractors and, you know, um, harvests and all these numbers. Um, And for me, it was the most boring thing that uh, one could do when one was a teenager, you know, to read statistics about harvests uh, during the Soviet times. This is what we did. And we actually had to learn it by heart. So I would never look at them uh, if they were really, really not important for (laughs) whether, if I wouldn't realize that there was something going on and I had to look at the, um, at the stations and I, started looking at them because uh there were all these reports in newspapers about this uh about the uh people at the stations then i looked in my legal materials again they came out where people were complaining that the you know um the heads of the motor tractor stations were putting people in prison, uh, acting as judges. Many different Soviet institutions were complaining about the heads of the motor tractor stations. And I realized, and plus um, Broido, the head of the party in Tajikistan, was also complaining about them. And I realized I have to look at them. It was unbelievable for me, but I had to look at them. And I realized that um, it's very interesting. They were part. Of um, Narcomsiam, and they were not subordinate to the Republican government, and they acted very arbitrarily. They were understood with this uh, uh, during the second um, uh, five-year plan. Uh, well, well, I have to say that the first five-year plan at the beginning we were doing great, and then. Uh, uh uh there were plan failures so stalin said well we have to do something about the second five year plan we, the results have to be better we have to uh really understand what went wrong and we really need trusted individuals who will catch the enemies who will f- uh, find all those either you know liars or lazy officials or uh you know enemies uh, who um uh, disturb uh, us or uh, distract, um, how do you say, prevent us from fulfilling the plans. So, um, interestingly, um, there was this distrust, and this is kind of one of the main arguments of the book that uh, Moscow had to, the Politburo had to always improvise and co- come up with solutions uh, to, um, first of all, fulfill plans. Um, that were, you know, um, made um, in Tashkent and in Moscow, but also uh, to get rid of officials um, that they did not trust, to make sure that actually what they say and what they write in Moscow is actually implemented um, on the periphery. And it's not only uh, a problem for Tajikistan, but for other republics, and even, you know, Russia itself. Uh, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan, most of the, I mean, all of the Soviet Union. So um, Moda Tractor Stations was one of the institutions uh, that was during the second uh, five-year plan empowered to report and uh, and to get resources and uh, to implement uh, different things, uh, having legal um um rights legal probably in parentheses because you know like putting people in prison without trial was understood as kind of legal um um powers uh or police powers uh political uh powers they would um you know um decide on who would be a party representative um in um you know rural areas, et cetera, et cetera. So just like the secret police that uh, subordinated directly to Moscow and not to Republican governments, uh, MTS had the same powers. They even had their own telegraph lines. (laughs) They had their salaries paid directly from Moscow. They were not, you know, they were this kind of um, parallel institution and the officials of MTS, one could say, oh, motor tractor station, it sounds so, um, agricultural, so technical. But in, in, in reality, they had a lot of, uh, political powers. They almost had political powers of the secret police. Um, and so, um, since Moscow is trying, you know, to uh, to send uh, different people to watch on each other and to report on each other, because they do not trust, in essence, nobody. Um, of course, this kind of new institution of the motor tractor stations, where they get all of these, you know, goods, these powers, this infrastructure creates problems, because the Republican uh, officials say, well, you know, these are motor tractor stations, so they just should take care of the agricultural questions, but the uh, the MTS uh, they even have their own newspapers, their own kind of educational agents uh, to work, you know, on educating about the you know communist uh, ideology, um, female emancipation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they have they they have their own newspapers. Uh, they say that well. I'm very sorry, but you are simply Republican officials. You are not so important as we are. And then we get all these struggles. Who is important? Who is in charge of instituting communism, of uh, realizing um, uh, the plans? Uh, Who is in charge? Who understands more? Who has more right? And, of course, uh, this question of, you know, is it yes-colonial? Is it not colonial? Uh, Is it now... um, I'm sorry, I use the German word. Is it now colonial? Is it not now colonial? Uh, who is right or who is wrong? You know, wh- whose voice counts more? There are all these power struggles between institutions and not only within republics, but also Tashkent plays a very important role. So MTS said, well, we are actually will be answering Moscow, but some of the other political um, actors, they are responsible to report to Tashkent. Um, so you don't know where who is the boss is is the boss sitting in Dushanbe is the boss sitting in Tashkent at the Central Asian Bureau or is the boss sitting in Moscow so all these power struggles and they are very well documented in letter writing and reports and so this is how I came uh, to look at the MTS Um, and, um, and at the end of the day I don't only look at MTS of course I do look at them but Uh, They are instrumental in understanding the power struggles and the political kind of structure that was instituted in order to deal with a myriad of political dilemmas uh, that the uh, Moscow Politburo uh, was struggling to, um, uh, you know, to resolve.
0: Yeah. And it, I mean, it's just, an, you know, once again, it's an incredible, um, some incredible insights that you pulled out of some perhaps unseeming uh, sources, uh, you know, for your research. So um, that was just a captivating part of the book for me. Um, and, you know, some of these anecdotes uh, now seem quite funny, but, um, you know, it, 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 it does kind of open up a new picture for me as the reader, so I, I really appreciated that. Um, I have plenty of more questions, but unfortunately, uh, we're nearing the end of our time. So I wanted to thank you again, Bodakoz, for what was, I hope, uh, for you too, enjoyable and uh, a captivating interview. Um, once again, the the book we were talking about was, despite culture's early Soviet rule in Tajikistan. Uh, through University of Pittsburgh Press by Bodakhoz Kasimbekva, and thanks again, Bodako for agreeing to do the interview. Um, I do have one more question. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, do you have a new project? Is it related to early Soviet rule in Tajikistan, or have you uh, shed the focus somewhat?
1: I shift the focus. Um, my current project deals with aging uh, experiences of aging in the Soviet Union after World War II. So between 1945 and 1991, a lot of research has looked now at youth. You know, Soviet childhood. Uh, uh, or you know, I, in my first book, I looked at professionals, people who institute the Soviet state, uh, but um we historians did not pay attention to what it meant to grow old in the Soviet Union, so I'm looking at this category of people and I'm asking you know what it meant um was um you know or was an old person a category uh you know what was the everyday experience of being old and how people negotiated this new social role in their everyday life and You know, what it meant for families, what it meant for, you know, professionals who were important people, party officials, and then suddenly uh, were not anymore at the, you know, um, at um, power, not have this uh, power, what happened to them. So this is my new project. Um, And yes, I'll be spending a lot of time in Moscow and very much looking forward to kind of more insights into the Soviet past.
0: Okay, well, we're nearing the end of the interview, but um I wanted to give you Boris the opportunity to um I don't know, give us kind of what's what's the main takeaway of the book or was there anything in particular that you wanted to emphasize um that we can tell the the listeners and the readers uh before we end the interview?
1: Um yes, I um I think one of the things that I learned the most in Um, something that I tried to, you know, put as my main argument um, is that um, today, well, historians um, showed for the case of the Soviet uh, Union, Soviet governance, um, um, brought up many different sophisticated arguments why we cannot treat Uh, the Soviet uh, governance as colonial uh, governance, that it was very different from, you know, British um, uh, colonial rule. In my work, um, and of course um, I agree with many of these most of these arguments, but in my work, what I try to highlight is that um, in this binary um, analysis imperialism versus um, modern state building for communists they also distrusted the kind of the modern state building um, as well, because just as imperialism, states and state institutions were bourgeois constructs, they uh the state was built by the bourgeoisie to protect their property and to oppress the proletariat. So if we say if we say that imperialism was something that was bad and state building was something that was good. We come from a uh, from a particular a particular Eurocentric West Eurocentric perspective. For the Soviet governance, I argue is that for communists distrusted the institution of state. They distrusted also the legal sphere. This is why I changed my focus. What uh, the basis of the communist governance and of the communist state were communists. It was communists who were doing. Uh, 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 Communism. And so this is why there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, uh, finding loyal communists, finding trustable pe- uh, persons, good people. Um, and in my work, I explain how that search for trustable, human, uh, just people was mission impossible and how. Uh, Moscow Politburo was struggling uh, with this construct, with the construct of the state based on persons, but also how people, officials themselves who said that, yes, I can do that. I know what, just equ- what justice is, what equality is. I'm against oppression. I'm against imperialism. I'm against colonialism. So I can be a good communist. But despite the fact that th- there were this myriad of Devoted uh, people who were ready to sacrifice their life for uh, for the idea of, of communism. How they still struggled and were caught uh, in the impossibility of achieving this goal. And looking at this dilemma of um, kind of this new of the Soviet construct of building uh, a regime based on people and not on institutions, distrusting the institutions, institutions, Western capitalists. Constructs, but rather trusting people uh, and their uh, understanding. Uh, communists use the word uh, communist uh, instincts, uh, and instincts were supposed to uh, drive the transformation. And how even those people, the most loyal, the most devout people, failed that project, and what came out of that. And looking at it at this periphery, this is what my my book, you know, developed to. Uh, to reveal i hope so yeah and thank you for time to share to share um yes my research with you
0: yeah thank you thank you for, you know i think we've taken up uh, plenty of your time but um thank you for a great interview and we look forward to the 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 upcoming book
1: thank you thank you very much thank you nick